March 11th, LA Podcast. Scott Frazier here with Hayes Davenport and Alyssa Walker. You're probably tired this morning because it is daylight savings time, day after. Still a, a thing that we're doing. I said the wrong thing again. It's daylight saving. I yeah. uh, these All these wonks. People are just ready to come out of the woodwork uh, yeah. when people say, like, I hate daylight saving time. People are like, actually, you hate standard time. We should really be in daylight saving time <laughs> all year round. It's like, everyone know it's the switching. That's what people are upset about. No one cares. I'm on record as saying that we should just ditch uh, the, the, the daylight clock saving entirely. Time. Ditch the clock. <laughs> yes. Time of the construct. Yada, yada. I did watch Russian Doll. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a lot to get into this week. We have a great guest, Annie Gilbertson, a KPCC reporter, is going to be on to talk about her efforts uh, to get uh, records on uh, shootings out of the sheriff's department and the difficulties of doing that and how it might get easier uh, with a new uh, bill that's passed through the state. Let's tell a couple of L.A. stories. I'll start with the movie review. I saw Captain Marvel twice this week. My uh, wife is the writer of the movie. I can't tell you how excited I am by some of the L.A. stuff in that movie. There is obviously, people know from the trailers, a huge scene that takes place on the blue line. But there's a couple of errors in it because the Douglas Station, which is a green line station, is is featured. Uh Uh-oh. At one point, but there's also a huge sequence in 7th Street and Metro Center. Uh, like they, they're not a huge sequence, but like a pretty like like a, a, a bunch of shots in the station. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe that this is a, this this huge movie. And there is another error there where she comes upstairs at the Pershing Square station right by Grand Park. Does that? No, I'm sorry. That was at the Civic Center. Civic Center. Sta- yeah, Where's Civic that? Center station. Yes. I wouldn't call those errors. I would call that movie magic. Right. But it took me out of it. It just took me out of the whole movie. <laughs> and I had to like calm down. But it, it, it's a great L.A. movie that I have no financial stake in. <laughs> uh, and it it's, um, feels very stupid wanting uh, the largest media conglomerate ever uh, the, to exist in history to have a financial success out of this, but I am glad that uh, <laughs> some people are upset about it. <laughs> Anyone else have an LA story this week? I participated in something that was kind of fun uh, last weekend. I, I did a little transit photo shoot slash interview about what it's like to um, get around LA with your transit a car. model. Transit model, which is not. You're, you're a, that's why you're wearing this cute yeah. uh, outfit that was today. Last weekend, oh, so. But you're just keeping the look going, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've heard of model trains. You're a train model. I am a train <laughs> model. Give me a little verve to, you know, pep up my wardrobe and just, you know, re- what was this represent. for? I think it's like a, a speculative photojournalism sort of thing where they're just trying to, to talk to people who get around LA predominantly without a car. So I I went and talked about my decision to commute by the red line, why I love the red line so much. And I was able to get in the the nice orange glow from the signs in the station. Okay. Yeah. You found your light. I found my light. I didn't know I had (laughs) one, but I do. Those our two stories are uh, both connected to a tweet by Carter Rubin this week that I thought was really funny. He works for the NRDC. Is that right? Yes. Uh, And he it was an image of the number of Captain Marvel showings, I think, at the Arclight. 
Uh, and it was showing like every 10 or 15 minutes. And he said, when you're, when Captain Marvel has better headways than your bus system, <laughs> yeah. you might have a problem. <laughs> that was great. Fantastic. Alyssa, what's going on? Well, we had a pretty big week for architecture people in LA because the architect who designed Mocha won the Pritzker Prize, which is the biggest award you can get if you're an architect. Well, not for any specific project, just for you just get it's like a lifetime work. achievement. What's yeah, the name that's of that why person? it usually goes. His name is Arada Isozaki. And he, this was his first major project was Mocha. And I think it's made a lot of people look back at Mocha and see what needs to be fixed. Well, the organization itself has been through some other uh, challenges, but you know, I went around and walked around the building and um, it is an amazing idea for a cultural institution that has been kind of ruined by a lot of the things around it. It was built as part of California Plaza, which was the crowning uh, mm-hmm. hunk of concrete that was <laughs> put on top of Bunker Hill once we tore down all the beautiful Victorian homes that were on top of it. And it was part of, you know, part of the plan was that it was the the money but by the developers that were going to put up these soulless glass towers that now go up on, on Bunker Hill. <laughs> they used the money to you know, pitch in to pay for Mocha. And, but the funny thing about what they said when they gave the money to the city, they're like, but you can't make the museum right. like a big, beautiful thing that competes with our soulless glass oh, office man. towers. So that's why it's this sunken, you know, project that kind of like is basically subterranean and actually has one entrance that's like, underground, Mm -hmm, under Olive Street, which is crazy. So when this Pritzker Prize was awarded, I went to Mocha and was like, oh, isn't this exciting? And they're like, we're actually trying to revitalize, you know, Mocha around Mm -hmm. his original vision. So we could see some pretty awesome changes to the museum and how it relates back to Bunker Hill. Of course, there's a lot more stuff going on in Bunker Hill now. There's like the Broad is across the street and Mm -hmm. there's tons of people walking around and like trying to enjoy what's going on on Grand Avenue now where it really wasn't like that before. Um, and then there's new projects going on on the other end of Grand as well. So I think we should yeah. close Grand Avenue to cars. I'm just going to throw yeah, that out there. Always, <laughs> gets, always gets there eventually. Do you know, uh, is he still living, the architect? He is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, him getting it now is is great. Because Mocha, I mean, it's like you're saying, I would not, I mean, it's very unassuming, especially with everything around it. Mm-hmm. So the point of not being People don't know visible, it's there. I yeah, mean, it's like uh, some basically Some people don't invisible. even know. Uh, yeah. What stands out much more than the building itself is that giant, uh, basically pile of trash. It looks like a plane crashed in the in the middle of the plaza. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's like that huge sculpture. That's I know there. what it is, right? <laughs> it's yeah, the editorializing <laughs> <Yeah>. continues. <laughs> but but that, that was my point too. And the story I wrote for Curbed was like, you go there and you see people taking pictures of that sculpture, Nancy Rubin yeah. sculpture in the middle of the courtyard, and completely ignore the building or this kind of amazing postmodern architecture because it's kind of been mistreated and miscontextualized. Did he design, is the Colburn school part of that too? Is that building part of it? Because that, no. so that I mean, takes up most of the real estate of that yeah, block. That's like a newer project too. I think it's kind of looks similar, which is why people might think it's just all right. part of the same complex, but um, there's so much that can be done. There's, Angels, you can ride angels fly it up now from, yeah. you know, from Hill and you can, 
walk through this great plaza that could be better. That whole there plaza, could be a lot. Really, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, say it could be a lot of it could be so much better. So I'm excited to close my LA story by saying I'm glad Mocha is paying attention to this and going back to this great architect's great vision for what could have been. You better. guys watch Velvet Buzzsaw yet? No. no, it's featured prominently in Velvet Buzzsaw. Oh, really? Mocha's. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Uh, the movie's not very good. Uh, the uh, but I enjoyed it. The um, the big one of the big things happened this week. We had an election that we had been talking about in the weeks prior. LAUSD District Five. Jackie Goldberg cleaned up. Really, just uh, like absolutely crushed. Uh, didn't get a majority, but in a ten-person race, that is real. She got I think forty-eight percent, something like that. The votes are still sort of being tallied. Uh, second place was a race between Heather Repenning and Graciela Ortiz. It looks like Heather Repenning is going to make it to the runoff. Each of them was around, what, like 13, 13 and a half percentage yes. points. Okay, so the, the, I mean, the, there are a lot of things that could happen between now and a May runoff. Um, of course, Jim McDonnell in the sheriff's race uh, took the lead in the primary, but then eventually did lose to... Alex Villanueva in the in the general, it's totally not locked up yeah. for Jackie Goldberg. That being said, um, there does seem to be a lot of momentum for her and for just generally the pro-union political forces in the city. Currently. Yeah, there was a, an election a few years ago when Steve Zimmer ran against Nick Melvoin, where I think he finished the primary in the 40s or something like that and then lost in the general. I think this race is different. The races we're talking about are uh, races with incumbents yep. where the incumbents take the lead. but And then the anti-incumbent vote consolidates in the general and then that person wins. I think the voting uh, for everyone other than Jackie Goldberg is not coherent enough to like join forces and get behind someone like Heather Repenning necessarily. I don't think it's like an anti Jackie Goldberg vote, certainly not an anti teachers union vote because nine out of the 10 candidates on the ballot were pro or like explicitly pro union. Right. Uh, and the one who is the one, uh, did you have someone specific in mind? Bajajara. Yeah, and that's uh, the official pronunciation. The way I just <laughs> the way I just pronounced it. Um, but yeah, no. So uh, that we also did see that for the most part, charters were sitting out this primary. Uh, uh, the I think Eli Bro did drop something like a hundred thousand dollars at the very last minute on who uh, Heather Repenning, I want to say. Okay, um, so possibly a precursor of more spending. We would assume yeah. in the wow. general election, um, but. It, I don't know how much of a difference that will make. I noticed this. Uh, they've done this consistently in elections over the past uh, few years. The L.A. Times had a sticker on the front page for weeks uh, with Graciela Ortiz's name on it. Graciela Ortiz for school board. I don't think that should be allowed. It really feels like an endorsement when you ha when you let a candidate put a sticker with their name on the front page of your paper. Because they didn't endorse her. They endorsed uh, Cynthia Like a Gonzalez. physical sticker. It wasn't a on physical the... physical yeah. sticker. Every day it came like Every that? Every day for weeks. Yep. Pretty crazy. Big uh, road diet news, Alyssa. What happened this week? The city council decided that the road diet can stay in yes. uh, Mar Vista. I, I don't know a better way to put it, but that's basically what happened. There was a big appeal based on some traffic safety deniers in the neighborhood um, who said that the street was more dangerous 
and had caused businesses to leave based on removing two lanes of car traffic and putting in bike lanes. And the city council heard the appeal and decided that it should stay. And not only that, it should not have to undergo further environmental review. This is uh, good news. It's a it's a win uh, for Mike Bonin uh, for what uh, unfortunately passes as political bravery these days. His willingness to uh, yeah. uh, make a, a 0.8 mile stretch of road uh, safer for cyclists and pedestrians. Uh, I, uh, I you can't help but think this shows how far away we are from any meaningful change that I mean, this is a very small uh, Less development, mile, right? Yes, it's less than a mile. And even worse, because of the way the environmental review system is set up, the only reason they don't have to impose environmental review on it is because it's just a, a strip of paint that defines the bike lane. If they actually had a protected lane, like actually built a buffer between the cyclists and traffic, then they would have to go through a much more prolonged environmental yeah. review. But uh, cars are parked there. That's the, only, the difference is a, it's a parking protected lane. So cars are parked now. The cars same are way parked on the other cars side. Cars are parked between traffic and bike. But it's still paint, like what you said. It is like, still yeah, paint. Exactly. And you can still get doored by those cars, right? They're not far enough away from the... You can't. Are they I mean, far enough away from the bike lane to not door somebody? It's it's a, it's a horrible. It's horrible. They should be protected, of course. But it's better, I mean, in, in some ways. The same way yeah. downtown, the, the lanes are much wider, the parking protected lanes downtown. So you the it's... That's a better scenario. Yeah. This is all relevant to the news this week because in San Francisco, a woman named Tess Rothstein uh, was killed on her bike in a in a bike lane, but she had to swerve out of like, a door was opened uh, by one of the cars parked along there. She had to swerve out of the way of the door into traffic and she was hit and and killed to your point that it does show how far we are um, as in contrast with what happened in San Francisco, uh, where you had a, a supervisor and their supervisors are similar in function to our council members here, mm -hmm. uh, the, the supervisor for that district came out immediately afterward and gave a, uh, a very um, sort of stirring assessment of the lack of safety for cyclists using that particular stretch of street. You wouldn't really see anything like that in LA. Like the the and the, the mayor immediate mayor London yeah. Breed also tweeted about it right. right away. The immediate call to action to actually uh, implement protected bike lanes there. We're not seeing that. We're, we what we have seen is a single council member. I guess I should say Bonin and uh, Huizar was formerly very active in this space. Less so now. Um, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but Bonin has been almost singularly uh, active on this front. And the result has been he's had to fight to um, convince people that he should not be removed from office. And there is not really the same kind of urgent action. Venice is, first of all, incredibly wide, incredibly busy. It functions virtually as a freeway. There is so much space and so much uh, ability to make this mm -hmm. a safer thoroughfare for non-drivers. Yeah, It has, uh, I think, the most bike lanes of any street in the city. They're not connected. They're not protected. 
um, but they are painted there. So like there is some expectation that uh, people on bikes are going to be using this. So it should be safer for them to do so. I, I do see one difference between what happened in San Francisco and the response to it and what in general happens in L.A., and it's unfortunate, but the reality is the person who was killed in San Francisco was a young white person who worked in tech who had a, like a huge amount of like support and like a lot of friends who were very vocal in mourning her. A lot of people I know from San Francisco knew her and were very upset about her death. The vast majority of the people who die, uh, pedestrians and cyclists in L.A. are people who are homeless, the elderly uh, and people of color by far. And it does feel i mean like we we don't get the response even like people that commit these basically vehicular homicide in their cars we know are not prosecuted uh and i think that is one of the big differences imagine if we had went after what happened with to wound fraser if we had had the same kind of response from Mm -hmm. elected officials we got you basically imagine, like, zero, right? Our yeah. mayor tweeting about that. I mean, I just just go back and look at every single instance of this happening in LA, and we have had so many opportunities for intervention, and all we get is city council members banning road diets in their district and saying that we can't have bike share right. and all these. I mean, it's that, that's it's kind of like there's not even that much to to celebrate here because what we essentially have is an extension of what we talked about last week with uh, Gil Cedillo saying, I mean, we, we, we discussed his former decision to disallow new road diets in Council District 1. Here, what we have is uh, yet another unanimous city council vote that uh, just is do whatever that city council member wants. Uh, in this case, it's Bonin and it's a good decision. Um, but the underlying process is still really damning. Uh, yep. It does not really say anything particularly good about politics in L.A. Yep. Uh, when I talk a little bit about a couple stories that came out this week uh, related to homelessness in L.A., uh, so there's a nonprofit called the Dream Center that operates out of kind of the Echo Park, Angelino Heights area. Um, They run the Angelus Temple that was built by Amy Semple McPherson in the 20s on the north side of Echo Park Lake. Uh, And they're a huge nonprofit in dealing with homelessness in the city. Uh, I know in in our area, or basically everyone who lives at Echo Park Lake goes to the Dream Center for food. They know that they can get meals there, hygiene kits, stuff like that. Uh, They don't do casework. They aren't trying to get people into housing necessarily. What they are mostly focused on is conversion. Like that's like like a big part of the process there. You have to um, listen to like Bible teachings before meals and things like that. Like the goal is to there. It's an evangelical church. The goal is to convert people to Christianity. Uh, Anyway, this week there was a story in the New York Times by uh, Stacey Cowley and Erica Green uh, about the Dream Center being allowed by the Trump administration to buy up a string of for-profit colleges uh, that basically a year later all went uh, insolvent. Uh, the, the, the dream center was unable to run these effectively. They left lots of, uh, students with money that they were owed, not being paid. 
uh, with like credits toward a degree that honestly probably would not have helped them too much in the first place. But now that they that they can't even use, they can't even come out of it with the with the degree. The, the story to me kind of it, it sort of suggests in L.A., until maybe the last couple of years, we put a, so much of the burden of dealing with homelessness on nonprofits that have not been super tightly regulated. Like the, you know, the LA, the uh, homeless services administration that was just not that big of a, of an influence on this stuff until like the last couple of years, we just said, we'll let the nonprofits take care of it. A lot of those are religious groups and places like the Dream Center that are d- dealing more than anyone else with homeless people but aren't necessarily getting them out of homelessness and are engaging in this other kind of unseemly stuff. I don't know. It just feels like it just adds to the incentive to consolidate the responsibility for this stuff around the city, to give the money to the city, for the city to hire people to, to deal with this problem instead of farming it out the way we have in the past. I think that that's absolutely right. Like if, if you really think about it, the, the, so we have LASA, we have the, the, um, the homeless ser- they're services hired. agency. They're getting bigger for sure. But, and and they yeah. exist in an interesting place where they are a cooperative um, partnership between the city and the county, which is uh, at least in in theory a really good idea because um, when we're talking about homeless individuals, probably more so than any other issue in the in the LA region, that is something that really has no uh, respect for municipal boundaries. These are things that should be taken to affect all residents of LA County equally and should be dealt with as such. But like you're saying, we have for way too long just assumed that there is uh, like the overwhelming mode of action should be through nonprofit and or foundation spaces or religious groups. And um, I don't think that we have seen like real positive results or it, or compelling evidence that there is public accountability that mm-hmm. can be relied on when those actors are steering all of the services in that space. Yeah. Speaking of accountability, there was another story that I saw on LAS this week that is about Orange County, but I think relates to LA County. Basically, it said that a group uh, in Orange County uh, did their own independent count of uh of the homeless population in that in in, in Orange County uh, and it was 60% higher than what had been found by the official count uh, and it does sort of make you wonder here even if the answer is like somewhere in between their count and the official count it are the numbers in LA being undercounted if that was the case in Orange County that uh, I assume you similar right. methodology did they have uh any detail about their own methodology or how it might differ from what the county did on their own i mean they spent three weeks uh in 13 cities specifically uh they got public money uh to get uh local law enforcement officers homeless outreach workers and volunteers to to do counts in those specific areas and compare them to the larger count uh they found that in um, anaheim specifically the biggest city in uh, north orange orange county uh had twice the homeless population that was estimated in the uh in the count from 2017 um, it was a group called CityNet that um, that uh, that put it together. 
Um, yes. So, um, I mean, I assume that the way that Orange County does it is somewhat similar to L.A. We know that L.A., of course, for the federally mandated point in time count the, the, that you and Alyssa both participated in, we do it more frequently than is required. But um, mm-hmm. so it sounds like this is covering a much longer span of time yep. than, uh, than the, what is it, single night or two night? Uh, it's three right. nights, three nights. Okay. I think, yeah. But three weeks. Of course, you're going, you're bound to catch more people when you're going out and counting. Um, and it sounds like it's a more, uh, sustained effort. So right. it makes sense. But hearing that 60%, uh, differential is, is pretty That's staggering. Huge. Yeah. And some people do believe in LA County that, um, were under reporting, not just by, you know, bad counting, but the there's not counting people who are on couches and people living in like converted garages, like people who are technically homeless mm-hmm. and that aren't be aren't being counted in any way by the way we do our counts. I'm hoping that we can get um, Dr. Robin Pettering, who's a guest of ours last year after yep. the count to come back this year when the results come out. But she did uh, mention to us when we spoke with her last year that it is absolutely known among experts in this space that the point in time count is a bare minimum um, that is conducted uh, during the coldest part of the year. It's only for a a very small number of nights that we're going out there. And it's, it's absolutely known that there are more people who are not being counted and there's not that much that can be done within the context of that type of, of count. But you imagine the difference in the um, standard error for the count. So last year they announced that there was a 3% decrease in the, in the, in the numbers that they had counted the difference between that and a 15% increase, which yeah. is well within the realm of possibility for what the actual numbers are, would be huge just in terms of how people perceive the the problem in the in the city. So Absolutely. I wish someone would do it um, here, do a separate count here as well. Boy, we have a lot of uh, sheriff's department stuff. We'll talk about okay, it more. Uh, we have like basically a whole NBA game of uh, <laughs> worth of and ones this week. Uh it's something new every day uh, with the Sheriff Villanueva and his seemingly very good friend, uh, Karin Mondoyan, uh, who he's willing to sacrifice a lot for. This is a former deputy who was charged with uh, stalking and choking his ex-girlfriend, also a deputy uh, who had his badge and gun basically taken away by the Sheriff's Department. Then when v- he was a driver for Villanueva's campaign, when Villanueva became sheriff, he reinstated uh, Deputy Mondayan gave him his gun back, gave him his badge back. And he, also mm-hmm. uh, has said that he wants to give him two years of back pay. Yes. Uh, wow. I didn't even realize that. Uh, and so he uh, has been at odds with the county supervisors over over this practice. They voted unanimously uh, that Mandayan should uh, not be reinstated, or I guess should be uh, reuninstated. <laughs> uh, and he uh, and so now, where are we at now, Scott? With the legal status, he's operating kind of a Schrodinger's cat uh, position <laughs> as a deputy. Uh, so yeah, uh, he is. So Deputy Mandayan has been um, as as far as the board of supervisors are. Uh, are con- concerned. Deputy Mondrian was legally fired, legally terminated by mm-hmm. Jim McDonnell, and then illegally reinstated by his successor, Alex Villanueva. We talked about previously 
uh, that the board of supervisors issued a strong rebuke of the of the sheriff, but it was unclear whether or not that they had legal standing to do anything else um, other than just state their disapproval. However, what they came back with was essentially a, a finding by their legal counsel that Villanueva did not actually have the authority to reinstate Mondayan without the approval of the uh, county council, basically. Yep. Now, Villanueva and uh, the representation for Mondayan said that they did get some form of verbal approval from somebody in the council's office, although they were unable to provide the name of that person. Yep. Uh, so as far as your question, what is this, the status of Mondayan currently? Basically, we're in a very strange situation right now where... The Board of Supervisors has said he is no longer, uh, Mondoyan is no longer a county employee. They said that they notified Sheriff Villanueva that he would no longer be, uh, that Mondoyan would no longer be getting paid. Yeah. Villanueva declined to tell Mondoyan that. Did not tell Mondoyan. The pettiness of this. And then the, in the letter right. that the county sent Mondoyan notifying him that he was not employed was by the Sheriff's not Department. getting paid. Yes. Uh, they, they say in the letter, there's a lot of pettiness to that, too, of like, we understand that your boss did not decide that this was worth mentioning to you when we told him days earlier that you don't have a job here. Uh, that said, he is not technically a sheriff's department, uh, sh- sheriff's deputy, but he does have a gun. And he does have a badge. He has not turned those things in, correct? Well, now that is, so that is the question is, is he a, or is he not currently a sheriff's deputy? If he is not as the and board. does the very process of observing <laughs> yeah. as a sheriff's like, deputy <laughs> affect our, like his status? Uh, the, the board of supervisors, if, if the board of supervisors is correct, uh, and this is something that will need to be at this point determined by a judge. If the board of supervisors is correct, he is not lawfully carrying department property, badge, gun, et cetera. If the sheriff is correct, um, then he should not have to turn those things in. And uh, Mondrian's attorney has said that he will not turn those things in. Is he technically uh, carrying a stolen police issue weapon right now well if he if he refuses to return it to the department then then yes and also oh, uh, there's there's been some uh so matt styles and uh, maya Lau, who have been reporting on this for the times have said conceivably if it's determined that mondrian is not like lawfully a reinstated sheriff's deputy at this point in time and he has an encounter with the public that leads to some sort of civil action that Villanueva could be personally liable for whatever uh, settlement ends up coming out of that or whatever, whatever the court decides, basically. So the Board of Supervisors asked for a judge to immediately enjoin uh, Mondrian's ability to act as a member of the force to come out and state that Villanueva acted in the wrong. The judge declined to do so, but did say that the matter could proceed to trial. So they're going to have a preliminary hearing for that in June. So for the next several months, we have conceivably uh, an individual who is going to be operating without clear, uh, lawful, uh, any any kind of status with respect to the law, but still has badge, gun, and his boss's blessing to be out on the streets enforcing the law. 
There were also multiple uh, Times uh, op-eds and uh, editorials this week uh, about Villanueva. Zev Yaroslavsky, uh, who uh, was a former county supervisor and city council member, uh, spoke out against his uh, dismantling of the uh, constitutional, constitutional policing, policing advisors, uh, advisors uh, and uh, replacing it with a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which is basically designed uh, to... Uh, hold up deputies yeah. uh, as basically blameless and uh, any, any like to, to 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 solve problems of deputies being persecuted yeah. rather than um, civilians being uh, shot and beaten up by deputies. Yeah, the uh, truth and reconciliation. This is a, this is an important, I think, piece of this. This is a, a separate strand that is not about Mondrian specifically, but is more about the leadership style uh, and and Definitely philosophy. Related, I would say, yeah, absolutely intertwined. Uh, but the the philosophy of new sheriff Alex Villanueva. So the truth and reconciliation uh, panel that Villanueva has been talking about setting up for several months, there was um, conflicting reports on whether or not it already existed at the time that Mondrian was reinstated. It turns out that it was, uh, this this group was hand-selected of three uh, department officials hand-selected reporting solely to Villanueva in December. Mm-hmm. They ruled that Mondoyan had uh, behaved in a way that brought discredit to the uh, department, but then uh, recommended what Villanueva wanted, which was his reinstatement. Uh, Villanueva, for his part, had said that this was now a transparent and fair way of determining whether or not deputy conduct should or should not be punished. However, the Times, again, Stiles and Lau found that uh, Villanueva had, through a a surrogate, said that he wanted this matter urgently considered, the matter of Mondrian's reinstatement in November, long before that that group actually came together Mm -hmm. at all. So, yeah, as you said, the Times Ed Board came out and said the Truth Reconciliation Committee is just really something that uh, Villanueva has put together so that he can push through in the way that he accused McDonnell of doing they said, whatever he wants. Yes, they said specifically the commission is a lie. It operates in secret. Its existence is unacknowledged. It is exclusively internal. This guy, I mean, like he, he's been very ambitious in a very short time. Like yeah. it's just incredible how quickly uh, he's dismantling uh, reforms uh, and an already in a department that's already rife with misconduct mm-hmm. pretty sure. and we uh, heard of course uh, another new story this week about uh, a sheriff's department gang that we've uh, talked about in the in the past take one guess as to what their tattoo is of uh, well, it's a, like a slight variation on, on the theme, sli- they're right? All they're all variations. skulls and guns and stuff. But what is what, what is this one specifically? It's a, a skeleton wearing yeah. a sombrero. They are the banditos. They are the banditos. Yeah. Uh, this uh, this is a gang that we've actually known about for a little while. Uh, they've been accused of sexually harassing uh, female trainees and also retaliating against other and, deputies. And uh, sort of like hazing activities, which is kind of what we found out about uh, in this story. Uh, you have uh, the details on on what happened at the East L.A. station. Yes, and the, and the most recent story, this is at the East L.A. station. The actual city of East L.A. Uh, is policed by the sheriff's department. It's unincorporated. Yeah, it's not a city. God, you ah, think you would know that, it. Hayes, after the Damn quiz it. you gave us. Sorry. 
So this group of, of young deputies had just gone through the process of becoming uh, official, like being able to work for the sheriff's department. They went out to a bar to celebrate. You would think this would be activity that would be encouraged by older deputies of the department. Uh, but instead, some of them showed up at this bar, people that are members of this gang, the Banditos, uh, and beat up the young deputies. Uh, two of them uh, specifically filed claims against these deputies, saying that they were punched and choked unconscious by members of the Banditos. Sounds a lot like a beating in ritual. Yeah. Uh, which is what, uh, like... Gangs do. <laughs> yeah, which is what their fellow gangs uh, are, are are known to do. And also... At it, what point do we have street gangs calling themselves the deputies? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, this is this is something that we saw on Twitter was people are, are commenting that it is reminiscent of the uh, quiet cannon uh, deputy brawl that happened about a decade ago. And this was between two groups operating within the uh, men's central jail. This came up uh, during our conversation with James Sexton last year. Uh, this the 2000 and the 3000 boys. boys. Uh, so two different floors of men's central jail, each with their own gang. Uh, and they got into a, a very violent brawl after or dur- during during a uh, holiday party. Yeah, during Quiet Cannon party. sounds like this cool, like kind of code name <laughs> yeah, for a mission or something. It's, like it's a- just the <laughs> name of a banquet hall <laughs> where they were having a Christmas party. Yeah. And started to attack each other in the in the middle of it. These these rival factions. So this is something extremely similar to that. And it just uh, kind of reinforces this notion that these gangs operate seemingly like almost in plain sight, but very few people are willing to talk about them until something like this happens. It seems extremely likely and uh, it seems extremely likely that in the coming months as these civil cases proceed, we might get a lot more information about the banditos, for mm-hmm. instance. There were, I, I saw someone uh, who I think you retweeted, Scott, someone on Twitter, at uh, Esther Eminem Lim, uh, who uh, works for the, uh, the Correctional Association of New York. Uh, she's a director of monitoring and policy. Uh, she said that it may go without saying, but if deputies are abusing each other, they're doing that to people on the streets and especially inside the jails. I think I, I, I agree. Yeah. It's difficult to believe that they'd be more reluctant to beat up uh, prisoners than they would be their own fellow deputies. So this is the um, sheriff's department. Uh, this is the sheriff's department misconduct that we know about. We're going to get into some of the misconduct that we don't know about uh, with Annie Gilbertson, reporter for KPCC, who has been trying to get these records out of the department for years and might be about to be hit with a lot of them. We're going to talk to her right now. Can I please welcome to the podcast Annie Gilbertson? reporter and not, i i mean i'm I, like being honest when i say star reporter stop it uh for <laughs> kpcc because you also host the big kpc podcast except now they have the big one so now you have to come up with yeah they had to the put bigger big one. in front of the right. name just to outshine me uh repeat the story of your uh one person uh war against i have the, an elevator on this Oh, great. Let me hear it. So it's a... It doesn't involve you going to war against the sheriff's No, party? no, no, no. Asking, okay. asking tough questions. That, I mean, that's okay. the basis of it. But, but looking at a string of deputy-involved shootings in South LA and asking, did it happen the way officials said it did? And um, trying to peek behind the curtain 
of police shootings here in Los Angeles and how they're adjudicated, how they make decisions about uh, use of force being in policy. And this was a string of shootings by one sheriff's deputy in which the sheriff's department and the district attorney's office found that the shootings were all justified. But when I um, looked through the records and talked to sources, different stories emerged. Now, I mean, the the peek behind the curtain element, I would say, takes up most of the real estate of the podcast, and which is what I love about it. Because with a lot of reporting a lot of people's stories, you don't really hear about the process of trying to get information from maybe the least transparent institution uh, in the city. And in this case, any information that you try to, to, to go get about these uh, sheriff's department shootings, they, they won't give to you, basically. Uh, they won't let you talk to deputies. Uh, at the end, uh, the, the actual sheriff does speak to you. But in general, it's like a really difficult process getting records from the sheriff's department overall. I mean, this is kind of like, it's very relevant to what we want to talk to you about today, Annie. I, I, I think maybe for our listeners who all should go listen to repeat because it's fantastic. Um, but when you're talking about like decisions about use of force and how those are punished, and um, I think people listening to this will probably think, that should all be public information that is easy for uh, for members of the public to find out about. So could you maybe give us a, a brief background on why it has been so difficult to get that information in California? Yeah, California is considered one of the most secretive states in the nation when it comes to police conduct. Um, there's just records that are strongly in. Um, there's laws that are strongly in favor of officer privacy, and and those have been lobbied heavily in Sacramento by police unions um, and their supporters, and and that's why we had the system uh, the, that we had when we were looking into police shootings here in LA County, and. Um, oftentimes what I was limited to is what I could get a few pages from the district attorney. So every police shooting goes up to the district attorney to who decides on whether or not to file criminal charges. The vast majority of the time they do not file criminal charges and that's it. That's, that's the part of the adjudication process that we could see when it came to the sheriff's department up until last year. And so when I was looking closely at these police shootings, I found it tremendously difficult to get records. I mean, if you think about the volume of records that come from a police shooting, I mean, it's hundreds of pages. We're talking about forensics. We're talking about audio recordings of witness interviews, um, witness deputy interviews, um, photographic evidence, all types of information that is completely locked away. And um, the, what I could draw out was um, one of the people who were shot, he was then charged with um, a burglary assault on an officer of slew of charges. And because he took his um, case almost all the way up to trial, then we got so many more records as to what happened that day through that criminal process. And so that was such a unique look that really drew, drew me into that particular shooting and, and the shootings of these this deputy. Um, and then that changed what we could get with um, SB 1421. Uh, yeah. So you talk, you, you mentioned until last year, uh, let's talk about SB 1421. Uh, the amount of records that uh, police and sheriff's departments are obligated to reveal has been up for debate in the last year in the state legislature. Uh, and there was a bill that uh, went, went through uh, the state capitol last year and passed uh, that, that it was not going to force these departments to, uh, to reveal more information than they've been obligated to in the past. Talk about this bill, who put it up and what was the story really behind, uh, this, this effort? 
Yeah, so it's uh, Senator Nancy Skinner out of the Bay Area. And um, this piece of legislation was going to make public investigations into use of force, including shooting. So all of that litany of records I was talking about, um, video evidence and um, audio evidence and the like, plus findings of officers uh, who have committed sexual assault, as well as officers who have lied. And none of that information um, was previously made public. It was often very difficult to get. And this came at a year, you know, I think that the context was, it's really like, you know, the nation talking about police use of force and whether or not police are doing a good job policing their own. And in California, we couldn't even see that process because the, the process happened behind closed doors. Um, so this was one of the pieces of legislation that we saw in Sacramento last year. There was another one that didn't pass that was going to um, tighten the the, the uh, use of force law, which would mean only use force when absolutely necessary, which is not the current law. Um, that one didn't pass. So it's kind of an interesting way to look at California. I mean, we tend to be pretty conservative on criminal justice issues in this state, even though they, they say that we're a pretty liberal state. That's mm-hmm. just not how it's been in the past. And that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. We had a chance to get rid of the death penalty on the ballot uh, in 2016, uh, and that was rejected. And a, I think a separate ballot measure to keep the death penalty uh, did pass. And speed up executions. Speed Cal- up executions. Californians yes. have affirmed their support for the death penalty a number, a number of times, going back to... Uh, the 70s, I think, when the right. Supreme Court first struck down California's uh, death penalty and, and voters put it back in place. Um, but in terms of uh, the, the the secrecy surrounding um, the, the policing of the police, um, we have in this state, I, I think that you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Annie, that there, there's a national discussion about how um, how the public interacts with law enforcement and what our expectations should be of law enforcement officials. Um, we have in place in California something that is uh, colloquially referred to as um, the, the police officers or the peace officers bill of rights um, that dates back to the seventies here and, and is frequently cited by um, by deputies groups, by um, elected law enforcement officials as uh, as something that is tying their hands with respect to public disclosures. It has been cited by uh, Sheriff Villanueva as recently as this past month um, as a reason why he was being particularly secretive about the reinstatement of a particular deputy who was accused of domestic abuse. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the arguments in favor of having a specific set of rights for peace ar- uh, officers, why that is seen as important within the law enforcement community? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that the answer is pretty obvious. I mean, police have a tough job. You know, they um, I've interviewed so many officers throughout, you know, the three years I've been doing police shooting reporting and all of them will tell you like, look, none of us want to be the guy who it, who shoots. It's not, it's not anything anybody's looking to do, but we are called upon to chase down bad guys and confront violent situations. And I think part of that is that they, that they, uh, you know, worry that the public won't understand the complexity and nuances of when they chose to shoot, uh, when somebody ended up being unarmed. And I think that the other part of it is, is that there is a lot of exposure that comes with putting this information out there. So, um, you know, even our elected officials, whether it be the mayor who appoints the police chief or 
the sheriff who we elect, all of these activities, when something goes wrong, can create a tremendous amount of pressure for our public officials. Uh, I guess my response to that, and I know you're, you're, you're speaking for uh, the deputies mostly, but it does seem like with some of the other stuff that we'll, we've talked about in this episode, that they do embrace violence extracurricularly a lot uh, in a way that the challenges to me, like, you know, the idea that they don't want to be the one to shoot. They're not obligated to beat up fellow deputies at, uh, at parties uh, and things like that, or glorify violence in the tattoos that they get uh, for the, for the gangs that they form within the department. Uh, and so that sort of belies the idea to me that violence is a last resort for them, given how much it seems to come up in just the culture of the department. The other thing I think we should mention is um, Jim McDonnell actually, or the, 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 the previous sheriff was an advocate for getting some of these records out in the name of getting cases uh, to actually go through the court effectively uh, because for a long time... Even the Brady list. Yes, the Brady list because uh, prosecutors couldn't have access to records of deputy misconduct. So they'd be going through a case and then it would just come up, it would be dug up by the defense attorney or something that one of the deputies who had made the arrest falsified evidence in the past, had committed sexual assault on the job, something like that. Yeah, and credibility issues. Credibility issues that, uh, that got a ton of cases thrown out, including, I'm sure, many cases where the perpetrator had, had committed the crime and would have been convicted otherwise. Uh, so this was, some, this was a source of conflict between McDonald uh, and basically what I'm and saying is... And the union, which is where... Would you say that most of the resistance is coming not even from uh, sheriffs necessarily, but from union leaders? I mean, yes and no. I think that I think that when we're talking specifically about, you know, they the unions resisted SB 1421 when it was um, a bill. Um, and we're also seeing them um, resist the implementation of the law as it, as it applies to retroactive records, records that existed before the law went into effect, which was, um, January 1st of this year. But I also think that there, there are many department leaders, the public agencies themselves that, um, fight tooth and nail for against disclosure. And we have one now in Los Angeles, but the person who took over for Jim McDonald and Alex Villanueva, and that was a big part of his campaign. He didn't believe the Brady list should have been released at all. Uh, and has uh, scuttled the truth and reconciliation. Or no, he's starting a truth and reconciliation committee. Um, but he got rid of the citizens investigative committee, the constitutional policing, constitutional advisors. policing advisors. There were two yes. of them. Um, in terms of SB fourteen twenty one, so as, as we've discussed, this is this is a, a bill that was written by Nancy Skinner, implemented uh, at least in name at the beginning of, of this year, and is seen as something uh, transformative for um, public disclosures of police records. Can you talk about your experience with trying to get at those records since the first of the year? Yeah, so we um, we celebrated the new year by filing some like 45 records requests. And um, like I had to like, I couldn't even put all the ones in that I wanted because I was like, well, I also need to sleep in 2019. I'm not going to be able to read all right. of this because if we're talking about hundreds of pages per shooting, um, internal affairs investigations into misconduct, I mean, we're talking volumes and volumes of records. So um, I enthusiastically f- filed all my requests. Uh, the unions just as enthusiastically <laughs> filed um, a, a slew of lawsuits in courts up and down 
um, California to try to block the release of any records from incidents that occurred pre-January 1st, 2019. And so their argument is that that the law does not explicitly say when when or what what time frame of records it applies to. And also that those previous incidents should be governed by the expectations they had of privacy when those incidents occurred because the law was different before. And um, that is basically in, in L.A. County, that's that's not one the day that argument. I mean, the implication of it is that they felt freer to commit misconduct on the job because they knew it would never get out. And if they had known it would get out, they wouldn't have done it necessarily. Isn't that kind of like implied by they, that you defense? Know, they've, never, they've never said anything cl- close to that. They the, the way that the attorney explains it and explained it in court a couple weeks ago was um, say you are a deputy and you're making a decision based on you know whether or not to fight a case that management has put against you some internal affairs case and it, maybe it comes with some discipline right. some days off and you're you're going to make this decision well like I could fight it I don't believe I did this misconduct but you know maybe I won't fight it because it's not going to come out and so they make they make that decision so that's that's the argument and he he, he the attorney compares it to sort of the expectation of attorney client privilege and how if mm-hmm. we were we were having a discussion with our attorney and making decisions around that we would expect that to remain private in infinity. <laughs> right. And I, I think that this is interesting because uh, to to the earlier conversation that we had about um, police officers having a separate set of rights, I, I think one of the things that uh, that governs our, our conversations about uh, civil rights, about civilian rights is that, uh, Hayes, as you were mentioning, like potentially um, peace officers maybe are um, behaving in ways that we would consider otherwise unlawful or un- or just unwise um, in in a given circumstance. But the whole notion of extending these categorical rights is that it's important to it's important enough that we should take um, take the bad with the good and extend um, uh, some level of benefit of the doubt. I think that the the sticky area for me in considering this for um, government agents, people who are acting in the name of um, cities and the state of California, et cetera, uh, is that there are citizens who are potentially being mistreated, uh, whose um, basically whose interaction with the government is being handled by people who are not necessarily acting in the best interest even of the state. So uh, there is a, a question of can we actually treat these past events with the same kind of amnesty that we would if we were talking about changing the rights of private citizens who are doing things on their own time. And, and I think it's very unclear to me how you can separate past misconduct from misconduct going forward. And we don't have a clear answer for that lately or uh, as of yet. But um, have you received any of the 45 requests that you've put in? I just started getting some records back. It's really exciting. I got some records that um, were records I hadn't seen yet for uh, the shootings I looked at for the podcast. So I'm really looking um, at digging deep there. The reasons we were able to get the records is because um, the union's efforts to 
Block them has has pretty much failed in court so far. So we intervened. KPCC, other me- newsroom organizations have intervened and and sought to oppose the union's efforts to block records. In Orange County, the media um, prevailed. The judge ruled against the union, and he actually said something that spoke in his ruling spoke to some of these bigger picture issues you bring about. And and that's that you know citing case law. He was talking about how you know there's this essential function of democracy that that the citizenship needs good information and that that too should be considered here. And um, so he ruled against the unions. We also had uh, a judge here in L.A. ruled against LAPD's union and the sheriff's deputies union. That is now on appeal. But what happened with that is then the stays are lifted and we started getting records. And and what was kind of interesting is like right up until the stay was going to be um, lifted. So we were going to get records and we knew it was coming. The unions knew it was coming, too. So they f- really quickly filed this last minute request with the appellate court say, hey, can you give us a stay to block records? The appellate court said no. And then they went to the Supreme Court last minute. Hey, can you block these records while this uh, case is still being considered? We're on appeal. We, you know, here's all our reasons. And the Supreme Court said no. And then suddenly my inbox was flooded. Wow. <laughs> With document with documents yes. wow. that's amazing with shooting that's yeah amazing. shooting dream. investigations yeah i don't have everything though i i need to i need to go through like painstakingly and it's like okay well here is a transcript of an interview that means there's probably an audio file of an interview where's my audio file you know just go through every single piece and make sure we have everything and right now the the sheriff's department wants to charge me like sixteen hundred dollars for audio and um, so, you know, I expect that we're going to be it's going to be a tug of war for records for a while. I don't I don't know. But Is there a place people can donate to, this, oh, to your fund? Well, you uh, there's actually we're actually about to start a pledge drive this week. Um, so you can always become a public radio member. And they have this special button to chip in extra for investigative. It's Whoa. like a special. Yeah. That's great. It's cool. special. I didn't know that. So what could this mean? Like what, like going forward, I mean, like, like if it's retroactive to all the records that have been hidden in the past, should we expect a lot of stories about to start hitting? It feels like this is where, this is where newsroom cuts, I guess, are kind of visible because this sounds like the, not the job of one person. I mean, you, that you have to, but it is you, you're just going to have to go through all these by yourself. It's not just me. I mean, we, we're lucky enough. We have a team of investigative. I have a data data reporter and another investigative reporter at KPCC. And I, you know, the, we're not the only newsroom looking into this. Every news, right. every big newsroom in the state is. Um, some of them have been part of the litigation to help bring records out, um, and many of them are getting ready for these this records dump and how best to yeah. tell stories from them. I have a, a question about the the near future of, of these types of investigations. Uh, we've talked a lot about um, sort of the ex post facto, like how do we deal with things that happened in the past that now the public wants to find out about. Um, but in terms of like, for instance, suppose that there is a, a, a high profile instance of misconduct that comes up during the remainder of this year. Um, as a journalist, how and, and what would the process be for trying to get records out of that? Is there uh, I've heard some kind of um, conflicting information about uh, when it might become public record, how the um, how the agency treats it when the case is considered closed and when you can actually expect to get records out of that. Is that something that you've thought about? 
thus far. Yeah, I would have to look back at SB 1421 for the exact uh, time period. But my general sense is that there is room for agencies to collect the information and to begin the adjudication and investigation process internally before they can be released publicly. And there's some good reasons for that. I, I think in general, you know, as with investigative reporting, the story is not always, you know, what it's going to be weeks and months down the road. And so right. you don't want to put out misinformation. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that there is, you know, we, we need to allow the adjudication to, process to move forward. But eventually those records can be public. And I mean, part of what I'm interested in as a journalist with, with those records is not even just what happened and learning the details of what happened, but how the officers were held accountable by the agency too. What kind of mm -hmm. questions were investigators asking? What kind of um, discipline was imposed or not imposed? Was, was, um, is there a policy issue at play here where, you know, I did this, I did this story a couple years ago about trends of, uh, deputies shooting into moving vehicles and the sheriff's department was doing it much more often than the LAPD was doing it, uh, resulting in, in more officer shootings, mm -hmm. more deaths. Yep. And after that story, Jim McDonald actually says something surprising on KBCC is like, you know what? Thanks Annie for pointing this out to me. And they changed their policy. Wow. So like there is, there is something to be said about, boy, I really cannot see Alex V and Wave saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pretty stark difference. He didn't, he never thanked me for repeat for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but they should, I mean, they should, this, they should be thanking you. I think, I mean, I think this is one of the most important things that any big city or big, big, big metropolitan area needs to be focusing on right now. I mean, when I go to other places and go to conferences about urbanism, um, you know, and talk to other leaders from cities and places like this, um, everybody wants to talk about like what LA is doing to fix this problem. And I hear a lot about community policing and how like, this is a very good solution that like we kind of invented in LA and we, you know, a lot of people want to talk about it, but it doesn't seem like this is a lot of these reforms or like the, this new, the policy of community policing is like central to any discussion that's ever being had about reducing this use of force problem. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about that, about use of force, like taking our elected leaders and our law enforcement leaders being held accountable for how often their officers use force is that there's these like conflicting ideas. Whereas, you know, on one hand, they maintain like, look, it's not us that are deciding to use force. It's the suspect's actions that are dictating what we do. Um, so so we, 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 it's not in our hands, right? But at the same time, like they also can train better. They can also make good policies. They can also make decisions that either lead to more force or less force. The shooting in cars policy, for example. It's a perfect example. Yeah, that's something you really aren't going to want to do. I mean, that's like, it's, a, it seems very simple. Like that's yeah. like a very, and then what, cause what happens when you shoot a driver is the car keeps going. Right, exactly. <laughs> like it's the, it's a you know, convergence of our two biggest problems in Los Angeles and one, mm -hmm. but community policing in particular, I mean, they have good data that shows in the neighborhoods that they've been working in. Like they, they, they have police officers that like I've seen speak that are, and have talked to that said, I've never taken out my gun. And that is like a huge, that's like a, a metric that you want every, you know, officer to be able to say, 
I, I've gone my whole career. I've never once taken out my gun. Like that's amazing. And, and most, most officers will go their entire career without shooting their gun yeah, at anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually a very rare occurrence. So, so, so all the more reason to be more have, apply a lot of scrutiny to it. Exactly. Right? And, and, yeah. And, well, you talk about this on the podcast. The people that are taking out their guns are doing it a lot more often. It's like a subset of right. the departments right. that tend to like the subject of your investigation stacked up a lot of shootings way out of proportion to uh to the to the rest of the department and so is there like a uh like a natural process that should uh be triggered so to speak if uh if, if it happens too many times uh that somebody uh should come up for some kind of automatic review i mean even after once you would think i mean do they internally track that i mean they must know they this yeah, they know they definitely track so yeah we just don't know and that's what you have to right. find out yeah right no that's been it's been a recommendation for them to put it put um other advisors have advised law enforcement to move deputies who have been in multiple shootings out of the field um and maybe even not to the fault of the deputy, like maybe, you know, and maybe in each case it was the, the shootings were justified, which is, which is most of the time for shootings. Right. But just that, you know, when a deputy has been in a lot of shootings, it creates a lot of liability for yeah. the department. I mean, there's just that too. And a lot, I mean, it would change the way a deputy would uh, approach future situations. Say it's not the fault of the deputy, say a deputy is unlucky enough to have been in th three justified shooting situations. The, I would say the next one, a deputy would be more likely to to pull his gun uh, because of the things that that deputy had been through in the past. So I think there is a justification to say if you've been through it that many times, yes, you should probably uh, come out of the, the field at that point. I also want to ask, um, we're going to find out a, a lot more about prosecutors, it feels like, oh, yeah. when this data gets out, uh, when, 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 when all these reports come out. We're going to see, in a lot of cases, about uh, deputies that were referred to prosecutors to decide whether or not they had uh, committed misconduct. And the case we know for a fact, the case with uh, DA Jackie Lacey is invariably going to be that they were not prosecuted. Uh, my understanding is that she has never prosecuted a, a there's a recent one. There's a, re a shooting in the cars one that just got prosecuted. And I won't be able to say the details of what happened in that case, but there's okay. one, there's one recent case. I actually, yes, I, I think I know what you're talking about. That was a bit, and that was a, a, a fatal shooting. Is that right? I'm not going to be able to recall. Okay, sorry. I, you just said that. Yeah. Okay. But it's a very small number and including some cases where, I mean, there was one where uh, former LAPD chief Charlie Beck recommended prosecution for one of his officers and she, uh, she declined to, to do it. And now she's, it was just announced this, this week uh, that a, uh, that a deputy district attorney is running against her for the position next year, Richard Ceballos. Uh, from uh, farther left than she is. Could these records fill out our understanding of the relationship between the DA and uh, law enforcement officers in these use of force situations? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely interested to know on some of the decline to files, um, especially with integrity of um, officers have been called into question and whether or not they're still using those, uh, that officer's testimony, um, issues like that. I mean, I think that it's so interesting that I think we've come a long way in terms of our civil discourse around uh, cops uh, on the ground and how their decision-making can sort of affect 
the quality of policing and who ends up in jails and, and incarcerated and how it affects community of colors, right? Like we have this, we have this discourse that's been decades old, but for some reason, prosecutors have never been a part of it, right? Like they have always measured how well they're doing by the number of convictions that they get, right? And so I think as we see this criminal justice conversation move forward uh, in this country, there's going to be a lot more questions to our prosecutors about who they're charging and for what and what types of sentences they're requesting. I have questions about the gang enhancements and using those gang enhancements to increase sentencing and what that looks like across racial lines and jurisdiction lines. And I think I think that there could be other criteria in which we hold our elected uh, prosecutors accountable. Everything that we've been talking about today, it's funny that you mentioned like the shooting in the cars thing. It sounds so much like the way we approach traffic deaths and the idea of like vision zero and you collect data and you see where the crashes are happening. You see what people, you know, how people are getting killed on the streets, which is a lot of similar parallels to what's happening. And, but we don't, without that data, how can we get to like vision zero of police killing people on our streets? It's like a very similar thing. And so this, what you're doing is so important because we'll actually geographically be able to see where these are happening and then look at who's accountable. And that's, it's such a, we need a vision zero for, for the same type of deaths. Yeah, I, I think, um, Annie, what you said is, is totally right. The, the public perception of prosecuted, prosecutors has really been mostly been a relationship of complete trust. Uh, I think that most people don't have a solid understanding of what the uh, the role of prosecutors is in the judicial system um, or have a massively oversimplified role of what it is that prosecutors do. Um, of course, that is aided by this sort of construction that we have where um, the public is not necessarily permitted to know a lot of the reasonings behind um, why somebody might get tried for a certain thing or might not. Uh, so it's very interesting to be to see how that plays out once we start getting that information into the public sphere. I am interested in knowing, like in, in particular with regard to Sheriff Villanueva, who we've talked about a lot on this program who has routinely during the course of the of his campaign he referred to the the Brady list as being a fake list um, he has I think sort of taken advantage of the fact that much more prominent in people's attention during the the course of the sheriff's race was the treatment of undocumented individuals and families by ice uh, and much less prominent was, uh, the sort of treatment of deputies internally to the department as an issue. So uh, I'm wondering, how do you address and how do you, in in the public's eyes, um, legitimize these documents that we're talking about actually releasing and make sure that people uh, are not uh, viewing them as fake or um, uh, basically trumped up charges against deputies that are the result of um, social experimentation by um, overzealous reformers. How, how do you approach that if, if that's the view of... Wow, I just like have not even considered that they would... <laughs> Get ready. That might... <laughs> you better start. Like, I actually, I actually feel like... Well, okay, first I just want to add that to the point on um, Jackie Lacey's office. I mean, you know, it's not like she's alone and not charging law enforcement. There's, the truth of the matter is, is like case law, um, Supreme Court case law just gives officers really wide latitude on when to use force. And so we just rarely see charges. Yeah. We just saw it up in Sacramento with right. Stefan Clark. Yeah. 
uh, the 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 DA there re- uh, refused to charge the officers involved in that right. shooting. And even when you do see charges move forward, it, a lot of times the, the the cases can't be won. So I you know it's I think that the truth is is like we police shootings are not adjudicated in the criminal justice system really, you know, not really. Cause they don't ever make it there. Mm-hmm. Right. They, um, unless it's like the suspect, the person who got shot being charged and going to in the, he's, he's the one that's the defendant, but the, um, but you see him playing out in civil court and really the decisions about whether or not something wrong happened here happened behind closed doors in the top offices of law enforcement in these panels. I actually heard, um, chief Moore describe it using a military term, courts like a courts martial uh this panel of of officers who then get to decide what is acceptable right but to your point of your question about you know how do we how do we present these records i mean i just think that the i think part of our mandate in terms of investigative reporting is we really are looking for problems that can lead to change right we want so we want to be very 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 specific about what we're seeing so like the um, shooting into cars policy, for example, um, and then have all of the records that back it up. And then obviously report out your your biases and report out the other side and make sure that that's in there because that's all going to make the truth a lot richer. And I think people recognize that. I think people, I mean, I think people get what good journalism is a lot of times. Do they though? I think so. I, I, I think that they do, but I, I do. Um, it is, tr- it's troubling to me to have the, uh, those kind of records delegitimized from the, from the top of the sheriff's department in particular. I haven't heard, um, as you mentioned, uh, LAPD chief Moore, I haven't heard him say anything to a similar effect as yeah. that, but you, you make a, a, a great point about a, a shooting that we've we've talked about on this show in the past, the uh, the shooting of Molita Corrado by LAPD at the Trader Joe's that is currently going through the legal system because the uh, the person that they were shooting at was charged with her murder. And it feels like I mean, he appears to be mentally ill. He's representing himself. But it seems like with some great lawyers behind him, a lot could have come out from that trial because obviously the case would have been made on his behalf that he did not shoot this person. It was LAPD and some of the practices and training of the department could have come under review, but we uh, don't have that opportunity because he's being allowed to represent himself, even though he is clearly not equipped uh, to do that. Annie, Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. For taking some time away from the huge stack of <laughs> papers <laughs> yeah, that yeah. await you. Yeah, and I will. So just I, I just to round out sort of the um, the police records discussion, yeah. right? Like the the litigation is ongoing, right? Like the, it is on appeal. There are stays in other parts of California that are blocking records. We're gonna yeah. be we're gonna be seeing this fight play out over months and even years. Um, and outside of court too, we're seeing some very interesting behavior, um, in the city of Downey, there was, um, this case we just found out about like last minute of the Downey union going to the court to try to force the city of Downey to destroy police records that are over five years so that they couldn't be drawn out under SB 1421. KPCC has went in to, um, oppose that, uh, destruction of records. And they've already done some destroying and Inglewood and yeah, yeah. Inglewood destroyed some records. Um, the department of justice, uh, the California department of justice actually issued a, 
uh, you know, a, a recommendation to police departments saying, yeah. please hold on to your records. Yeah. Don't destroy Very them. Very innocent behavior. I'm sure they so, were already planning on destroying that stuff. Just and then you have, <laughs> and then you have like the city of Long Beach who has, has no stay. There's no court order to prevent their release of records, but they've just said, we're not going to release them. So we have varied implementation of SB 1421 um, that I will continue to cover as I also go deep on the records I did get. So be sure to go to KPCC during the pledge drive next week and put in hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> in the... Yeah, make a note, make a note. <laughs> in the investing. This money is just for Annie. <laughs> Annie's records. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Annie. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone, for listening to LA Podcast. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.